1: Join me, Emily Tish Sussman, every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
4: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott Benjamin. And I'm Ben Bullen. And before we get into today's exciting, exciting topic, Chevy, Chevy Corvair. Mm-hmm. We've got a major correction. We today. have a huge correction yeah. and a bit of an apology. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm red faced reading this one because, um, boy, this. I'll tell you the, the 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 quick and simple way this came together was, um, you know, we we did a uh, listener suggestion a few episodes ago. A we couple did of them. two. That's right, two. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I still I'm smiling about this. Um, we did two listener suggestions from the single reader or listener. Fast Sandy. Yeah, Fast Sandy from the UK, right? Uh huh. And Ben, you're laughing at me. I know that's. I'm know laughing as, at both of us. I know buddy. exactly why. So we did, uh, first we did the, uh, uh, Donald Campbell at Constant Water. Uh huh. Then we did, uh, the Isle of Man TT. Correct. Right? And, uh, I was thinking everything's going along great. And we were thanking Sandy the whole time for the suggestions and, um, I get an email from Fast Sandy again, you know, saying, "Oh, thanks for doing these. We appreciate it." Uh-huh. Uh, and by the way, I uh, I raced in the Isle of Man TT, and you guys asked about this. You know, did anybody race? And I didn't want to mention it, but I did race in that in that race. And so we were floored. I was like, "Oh my gosh, she races in the Isle of Man TT. This is awesome! How, how cool is this?" So we find out that you know Sandy raced in the Manx series, which is the uh, the amateur series. Mm-hmm. Also, um. <laughs> sends along a couple of photos and says, "Hey, take a look, take a look at these." So I open the photos and there's two photos of a, a motorcycle rider. Beautiful shots, by the way. The next one, the third shot, is of Sandy in the pit standing next to his bike.
5: Yes, and Sandy told us very politely in his email that uh, his girlfriend, I believe, uh, cracked up. <laughs> The yes. multiple
4: times that we referred to Sandy as female, uh, and- I listened to the uh, Coniston Water episode, and Uh-oh. I couldn't have said the word she anymore in the first few sentences. So I apologize, Sandy. Uh, Sandy is a male. In fact, uh, <laughs> wow. I mean, the uh, the Isle of Man TT stuff is really really cool. And We got into kind of a back and forth conversation yes. that went on for a while. Found out that you know not only did he race in the uh, in the Manx series, um, but also. Uh, Also was a a monkey on a sidecar in -hmm. uh, in another race, in another professional race, or amateur race, I guess, at a place called Oliver's Mount in the U.K., Uh, but raced in the monkey position, Ben, as kind of a last-minute stand-in, is what he said.
5: Yeah, and this was really interesting to us because, Scott, you and I have talked about sidecar racing, and although... I believe our podcast was filled with jokes about sidecar monkeys. One thing that we did hit on and that still really interests both of us is the, um, the fine art of sidecar racing, especially as the monkey. There's so much science behind your weight distribution and stuff. It's,
4: you're not just sitting in the sidecar, I think. And I, point. I swear to you with my hand up here that, that Ben and I have both talked about the the monkey position on a sidecar so many times in this in this podcast studio that uh, I I mean if we had a nickel for every time we'd have uh, at least 50 cents.
5: We would at least be buying our own sodas.
4: Yeah, that's <laughs> 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 So anyway, Sandy, I I truly truly apologize. I know everybody got a good laugh out of it, you know, on your end and maybe, you know, on our end uh, as well. We're we're kind of chuckling about it right now, but Sandy, I apologize mm-hmm. and uh, Let's move on.
5: Yeah. And just thank you again for being such a good sport. Uh, Very good. We really appreciate it. And moving on, let's talk about a uh, different listener, our buddy Joel. Oh, I guess you can say his full name because it's on Twitter. Yeah, why not? Our buddy Joel Rushworth, who sent us a wonderful suggestion. Uh, Joel, we hope you're listening because we're taking you up on the story of the Chevy Corvair. Uh, Joel sent us a really cool link and then he wanted us to talk a little bit about the Chevy Corvair, about what happened to this, let's be honest, fairly
4: revolutionary vehicle. Yeah, it was revolutionary, but when I, when I first Heard this, mm-hmm. and, and I've had this impression in my mind ever since from the very beginning when I heard about the Corvair. Now I've seen them for sale my whole life, really, you know, on used car lists and things like that. Because right. back when I was buying my first car in the nineteen late nineteen eighties, mm-hmm. um, you know, at that time, really, you could get one that wasn't that old. I mean, it would be a, a, akin to buying a car from the nineties right now. Exactly. Right? So um, it's not that old. You know, it wasn't that old at that time. Maybe twenty years old. Um, but I'd always heard there was this really, really negative connotation along with the Corvair name,
2: mm-hmm. and
4: I, I never got, you know, why that was. And I, I'd, you know, I knew that there was a, a, a book written about it that, you know, was unsafe at any speed. And that's you know, by we'll, Ralph Nader. Yeah, we'll, we'll get we'll to get all there. this. But, but I had this really, really negative connotation about, about, about the Corvair in general, and thought I would never get one because why would I, why would I do that to myself? Mm-hmm. Why would I, why would I put myself in danger? as it turns out maybe maybe i should have been looking at them a little more carefully as a you know even a potential first car yeah maybe bad press isn't always completely
5: accurate you know what i mean there's a lot of there's there's a i I just want i think there's a point we need to make now we're going to talk about a little bit about the origin of corvair uh then we're going to talk about uh i don't know scott some of the differences maybe with models sure and how uh the difference between when it first came out in 59 and later when everything when the s hit the f Fill yeah. it. Fill in your own favorite words, there, folks, and uh, then we're going to explore some of the controversy here. To uh, go into this excellent suggestion by Joel. So, uh, just from the beginning, what we do want to put out there is that marketing and press can have such a tremendous impact on a car's success, and sometimes, uh, sometimes it can even it can even make a car unsuccessful if there's not really that many problems. Yeah, you
4: want to hear something kind of unusual here? I found a quote from uh, the guy who's uh, General Motors, well, Chevrolet division's, uh, general manager at the time and i guess it was like 1959 we have to start at really okay. now the corvair the first model year of the corvair was 1960 now yes. in 1959 of course they're doing their press thing and getting the vehicle out there and you know showing it to the public and letting people drive it oh um, yeah sorry i said so, 59 but, well that's but, all right no yeah. 59 is good because that's the year that they were getting it out there and 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 really showing it around um, so the the uh the guy who the guy who was the chevy general manager his name was edward n cole mm-hmm. and uh mr cole um, as was quoted in this, uh, this book that I've got, it says, uh, No one will know what the full effects of a car like the Corvair will have on the market. It all depends on the economy and how good a sales job our dealers do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, right then he's very optimistic about this whole thing. You know, everything is uh, everything's going along really well. In fact, Time Magazine, they drove it in 1959. They really, really liked it yeah. a lot. Um, and it, remember, 1959, Time Magazine says they love it. That'll be important later. Yeah, yeah, remember that part. Oh, I've
5: got something cool sure. here, too. This is even a little bit further back, a little bit earlier. Oh, sure. Uh, so, as we know, Ed Cole uh, became the chief engineer of Chevy in 1952, right? And uh, he asked Maurice Ollie, who at that time was head in R&D, uh, to come up with something new. And so, as Ollie and Don McDonald... Um, the subsequent head of R&D Recall, uh, they went into Cole's office with all kinds of charts and programs covering every kind of car you can think of. Ed refused to look at them. I don't want anything conventional, he said. Get going on that rear engine.
4: Okay, get that yeah, rear engine. There we go. That's the key, right? Because uh-huh. uh, because this was a uh, – in fact, this is the first time that – well, actually, even to d- till today, I think – this is the, uh, as I'll quote here, this is the only American design mass produced passenger car with a rear mounted air cooled engine. Now that's, uh, that's all very important that all those qualifiers are in there. Yeah, air cooled yeah. and rear mounted, you know, all that. But, um, very important car in, in General Motors history, very important car in American automotive history. And Ben, I think this is one of the, boy I can't I can't be sure about this I, I just read it somewhere but okay was this the first compact car did you read that or was it um the first car considered to be compact yeah um, the, that fell into that category right yeah
5: we've got a pretty cool article on our website that talks a little bit about this and the um the smaller companion car had been thought of before by Chevrolet they contemplated something called the cadet uh, if you recall that's mm-hmm. that was a but that was a prototype uh, four-door sedan um right after world
4: war 2 but see the difference is this one went into production right exactly all right and it's it's a very unusual production car and you know can i take one quick sidebar here before we get into just some of kind of, kind of uh, immediate details of about the initial Cor- corvair let's consider this a uh, sidebar heavy podcast i think we <laughs> i think we're going to have some fun with this i one. i think i read somewhere that uh, the george romney Former governor of Michigan, uh-huh. uh, he, I believe he coined the term compact car.
6: Really, I believe
4: I just picked that up somewhere. I don't remember where I got it, but uh-huh. uh, but that's Mitt Romney's father, The mm-hmm. you know, former uh, presidential candidate Mick, Mitt Romney. It was his father, who mm-hmm. was also governor of Michigan, coined the term uh, compact car. Before that, it had just never; it was never even a category. That's fascinating, and it kind of makes sense that you know, up until 1960. Um, I mean this was considered if you look at a corvair it 's still kind of a, a bigger car our compact right. cars now are much smaller yeah um but this one had some unusual features to it it was a it was a rear engine we mm-hmm. mentioned that it was an air cooled uh, it was an air cooled flat six yeah, I was going to say it's a pretty complex engine too. yeah it really was and it very um compact you know very small it fit underneath the floor uh, floorboards in uh well you know what i 'm getting ahead in another vehicle <laughs> yeah in the uh in the Corvair, you opened up the what it would be the trunk and that was the engine compartment, of course. Right. Uh, it was a rear wheel drive vehicle. Um had about three engines. I think there was even a turbo thrown in there somewhere, but mm-hmm. there was a two point three, a two point four, and a two point seven liter by the by the end. Mm-hmm. Um had a three or a four speed manual transmission, and you could get a uh, or you could get a two speed power glide automatic, which is kind of unusual.
5: Yeah, yeah. Two and, speed automatic. And let's go ahead and point out that these were heavy engines. Because, uh, despite having a lightweight block, an aluminum block, uh, they were going, weighing in at 366 pounds, which that's, is above the target weight.
4: That's pretty, that's pretty heavy really, considering it's a, it's still a compact engine, it's just, a, yeah. probably a lot of iron in there. Now, I want right. to do point this out though. Yes. A lot of this, uh, it was an extremely popular car when it was released, and I'll, I'll get to that in just one moment. Right, but, right. But it was very, very popular. The 1960 reception of this vehicle was very, very favorable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to point out that there were a lot of other cars that were designed or, or, you know, but they were built in other countries that were designed. I, almost nearly identical to this one in, in weight distribution and mm-hmm. suspension design, mm-hmm. and later that becomes extremely important. Um, but yeah. if you want to look at cars like well, especially in in Europe, uh, there was the VW Beetle, you know the uh, the, the Type One Beetle, the very first mm-hmm. one. Right. Uh, the Porsche nine eleven, the Fiat five hundred, the original Fiat five hundred. Um, there was also the, a car called the Skoda, which had it was a Czechoslovakian car, so it had a, a similar engine layout design, you know, rear wheel drive, same weight distribution, everything. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a real trick to driving a rear engine car that I'm sure a lot of Porsche drivers can attest to that um you, you don't corners are handled completely different than they are in a front front engine rear wheel drive car or front engine front wheel drive. You know, they all have their own characteristics. A rear engine rear wheel drive car that has this type of suspension that was a um it's what, what GM called a quadriflex independent suspension, which, you know, again, was similar to the Porsche, VW, even Mercedes of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this independent suspension seemed to cause a lot of trouble with American drivers that just didn't simply know the handling characteristics of it. Right. And if you weren't, you know, up to speed on, you know, the way, I don't know if that's a good way to say it, if you weren't um, monitoring your air pressure, your, entire your pressure tire all pressure all the time, that, yeah. was, that became critical as well. There's, there's so much to this story. I keep jumping ahead, but. But um, you think the, let's be honest, you think the Corvair got a bad rap? I, I do because in, what, in 1960, uh-huh. when it was first released, I mean, I said it was extremely popular, right?
5: Yeah, it was, it was lauded. Uh, now, wh- I want to go back to the tire pressure here because one of the big factors in the vehicle's performance would be uh, observing the recommended tire pressure. That's 15 in the front, 26 in the rear, uh, pounds per square inch. And of course, Wait, 15 in the front? I've got 15 in the front. Okay. And uh 26 in the rear. Now, when this happens, um you know, a lot of drivers, let's be honest folks, are not doing the manufacturer recommended uh safety check that you are supposed to do every time you enter your vehicle. Yeah, sure. Yeah, right. It's that's up with our driving laws no one follows. Yeah, I know. But uh but point being, um this this rear axle, as you say, Scott, does drive completely different. Uh, differently to a uh, front axle. However, when this vehicle came out, people liked it.
4: Yeah, they loved it. In 1960, just to give you an idea, I mean, I can kind of we'll we'll go to the mid 60s. How about that? Okay. Um, in 1960, it, there was just there were amazing sales numbers. I mean, we're talking like in the first two days that it was available to the public. Uh huh. Twenty six thousand units sold in two days, Ben. They sold twenty six thousand Corvairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that represents a, a full thirty five percent of Chevy's total sales for those two days. Now that means that, now that also is to me is incredible. Mm-hmm. She, that means that that day, you know, that, those two days, Chevrolet sold seventy five thousand cars. Corvairs accounted for twenty six thousand of those seventy five thousand cars in just two days.
5: Which is fascinating because. Um For the total 1960 Corvair production um, in the U.S. Now this is production, not car sold. Okay, it was uh, only 250,000.
4: Well, that's quite a bit still. That's a that's a high production number. Yeah, for the first year too. But I mean, for for geez, what is that? I was at one percent of of the sales to uh, to to sell it in two days. That's pretty that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Um. But anyways, it also got a extremely favorable review by Time Magazine in mm-hmm. 1959. So this is prior to the release. You know, right. just prior to 1960, uh, they called it a. Um, what did they say? It was the the new age of innovation in Detroit. And mm-hmm. it was based on, or they called it a forerunner of new innovation in Detroit. They said it was. Uh, you know, the, a car based on fresh engineering is what they said. Yeah. So they were all for this car, right? And that's mm. critical, or not critical, but important later when you hear what happens. It was um, something different, and to quote Arby's, yeah.
5: S- different
4: is good. <laughs> Did I do that right?
5: I... I think that's good. I think I'm just hungry. Uh, Arby's, okay.
4: <laughs> so, um, also in 1960, I yeah. uh, was named Motor Trends Car of the Year. So mm. that's, a, that's a huge award to it's win a right big there. Big accolade. Um, let's see. I guess that's about it. I mean, but you know, by the time in the mid '60s, you know, we get into the second generation, and you know, like even even people like uh, David E. Davis, who is Car and Driver's editor, he said something like, you know, the uh, the Corvair is one of the the most important new car um, models of this entire crop of 1965 models. It's one of the most beautiful cars to appear in the country yeah, since yeah, before yeah. World, War, World War II. So. They get very excited about the Corvair and uh, I don't want to gloss over too much here because in you know 1960 or from that point forward I guess, mm-hmm. um, they really came out with a lot there was a lot of variety in the Corvair line.
5: Right, and when we're saying variety, we mean uh, not just models, but also body styles, right?
4: Exactly, yeah, and there's a, there's more to this than you really think, because, I mean, mm-hmm. when I was looking at, at used cars, and, you know, these were popping up all over the place, um, you know, now they're in, like, classic car magazines and stuff, but yeah. um, they offered, and, and these are two-door and four-door versions, okay? They had a convertible, they had a coupe, they had a sedan, mm-hmm. they even had a station wagon for a while, uh, which gave <laughs> rise to, um, something called the Chevrolet Greenbrier, which is a van and, like, a, well, those are both the van and station wagon, I should say. Those are both the, based on the Corvair.
3: Ooh. Uh,
4: they had an eight-door van, they had a six-door model as well. Um, oh, this is cool. Well, okay, they had a hardtop, and then Ben, this is maybe the coolest one. What's that? I like the pickup truck. They had a, they had a two-door pickup truck that was based on the, on the Corvair, and it was called, one of two things, it either, either called the load side or the ramp side. And uh, the ramp side—it was. This is so neat. It has a really short wheelbase, uh, pickup truck bed. It has kind of like a van front end, so it's real tall and and squat in the front. Now the engine remains in the back in all of these models. Now, This, right. this is what's unusual. So you got a van that has a rear engine. You got a, a station wagon. You got a pickup truck that has a rear engine. Now the way they did it was they raised the floor in the back a little bit at the yeah. very back end of the tailgate, but that's not really the tailgate. Mm-hmm. This is the cool thing that the the passenger side had a a. Almost like a door, it looked like a gate, like you would find on the back of a, a pickup truck now, mm-hmm. but it was longer. You know, it was the half of the bodywork, you know, going up, and you would lower this down, and you could, you know, wheel in a wheelbarrow, or you could load in a, a lawnmower or something like that. A very short bed pickup mm-hmm. truck, but it had this really unusual feature, and it was that ramp side on just one side on the passenger side. It was, it's a it's a neat looking car, and I think it. it you know, it makes its way into you know shows here and there. You'll find lots of photos online if you search for Rampside Corvair. And, uh, anyways, I think that's really cool. So this uh, this Greenbrier line of vehicles, um, you know, where you can get you can get panel vans, you can get window vans, you can get all kinds of options in these station wagons, aside from the sedans and coupes and convertibles and all those that they sold. So our point being
5: here that the Corvair dynasty was proliferating it was doing fairly well i do want to i was fighting with myself over whether or not to include this but i think we should go ahead and also include just a mention of uh the corvair monza the monza made a lot of people aware that there was a market for sporty cars so it uh it showed that there was yet another side of this corvair
4: dynasty yeah Now picture the cars that were being made in the 60s Mm -hmm. they were pretty big they were they were you know, long, wide, low cars and uh, extremely heavy. You um, mm-hmm. completely, you know, they had giant engines in them, great big V8. So here's this, you know, this air cooled V6. That's you know, got yeah. a, a, a totally different layout. Very, very small compared to what's out there. you know, at the time, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people were, were, I don't know, it, you know, it was popular, but still, a lot of people were probably looking at it thinking, like, what, what's Chevrolet doing here? What are they, what are they doing? Actually, what is Ed Cole doing? Because Ed Cole. Was the um, he was the still uh, the creative mind behind yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. And he was he was like I mentioned the general manager of Chevrolet mm-hmm. within General Motors. And, uh, he was actually, you know, just to give you a little bit of background on him, not much, but, um, he was called the father of Chevrolet's small block V8, which is a, a hugely popular engine that, you know, yeah. stayed around for a long, long time. I don't have the, the, uh, 350 numbers, but, uh, the small block V8 was big. But he was what they call the, uh, the champion of the Corvair in 1959. He was the one who said, you know, this is my group. This is what, you know, I'm going to go out there and really, really sell this to the public. Um, we're going to make this really popular. And he did just that. He completely directed the uh, the development of the Corvair, so he was you know he was completely on board with this thing. Mm-hmm. The uh, the problem was um, that later, um, as he began, he was promoted out of the division. Mm-hmm. Um, he became he, he eventually became head of GM the head of GM and. Car and truck group in 1961, so that's not much later. Um, He became the executive vice president of of all of General Motors in 1965, and by 1967, he was the president of General Motors. So, you know, Mm -hmm. he was on his way up. Um, One name that creeps into this whole thing, and I just need to mention it now because later, um, you know, we'll get into other stuff later, but eventually the person who became uh, the, the Chevy division general manager was John DeLorean.
5: Ah and uh anybody who thinks that they might recognize that last name you are correct ladies and gentlemen <laughs> that is the same father of the DeLorean
4: car Yeah I mean he was like and you remember who DeLorean was now this is like late in the 60s so you know I I only want to mention this now because I know we won't get to it later uh, <laughs> yeah. because we've got this whole bit about the controversy right, coming up Right while we're here But anyways DeLorean in 1969 that's when he became the uh, the Chevy division general manager mm-hmm. and DeLorean he was like he was like a celebrity at the time right yeah. and he was making appearances with with movie stars and starlets sure. and you know he was traveling all over the place and he was really making the rounds right I mean like heads of uh the, the movie industry and, you know, um, music stars and, you know, everything. He was just a, he was a big shot at the time, right? And mm-hmm. he went from, he, of course, went from Chrysler to Packard to GM and eventually onto his own DeLorean motor car company, right? And we have a show all
5: about that. So in case you guys are worried that we're going to skim over it, we are in this episode, but check out our, uh, check out our iTunes and our RSS because we have an episode on the DeLorean. E-
4: exactly. And he was, you know, he was also, he was a big deal at the time, yep. you know, because, he had he had just moved from the Pontiac division. He was in GM for quite a while, and he moved around, you know, mm-hmm. within the the ranks there. Uh, he was with the Pontiac division for a while, and one of his greatest accomplishments, if you remember, was the Pontiac GTO. So, you know, he's he's kind of on board with these. Uh, you know, that's the first muscle car, really, in, in a lot of people's eyes. Yes. And uh, so he was on board with something that's you know sleek and powerful and you know exciting and and uh, I'll be honest, I don't think he really put a whole lot of faith in the in the Corvair brand or the Corvette name for the Chevrolet brand at the end of the 60s when uh, probably when it needed it most, Ben.
0: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way
3: Smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart. I think like it would be fun. We have the best conversations, like we have fun, but then he would treat me like crap.
2: Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one.
6: Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.
5: Yeah, and let's also, now that we're starting to talk about the faith in the name, let's also point out that. Internally, uh, the Corvair was not necessarily as popular with his executives as you might imagine. There was internal division uh,
4: amongst both the sales teams and the um, engineering teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it didn't get. Uh, it didn't probably get the uh, the type of promotion that um, a lot of other makes would have gotten or marks would have gotten. Yeah, it's, now-
5: it's good. To, it's unfortunately, it's accurate to say that the Corvair did not necessarily get a fair shot in comparison to other vehicles now
4: also complicating this whole matter yeah we've got something within general motors that that was you know far more popular at the time the corvette yes right now that's <laughs> yeah. uh, that's one that was just getting all of the chevrolet attention at the time that was like the rock star of the group right right now but in addition to that there was competition right mm-hmm. uh, the competition came from ford and from uh, again from Chevrolet in the late later part of the 1960s. Right. Now Ford came out with a, with a pivotal model that uh, <laughs> that's still popular today, right? The Mustang. Yeah, the Mustang. Now the, it's competing with the first generation Mustang. I don't I don't know how you would even stay afloat if you're competing against that.
5: Yeah, and what's interesting, and this is why we bring up the Monza earlier. What's interesting is that uh, some people will say that the Corvair Monza proved. Uh, that there was a market for these sporty cars in the United States, and that perhaps that proof of concept led to you know to reverse the old cliche became the antidote that created the poison because after that uh, of course people Ford are seeing this and then boom what comes out the Mustang somebody should high five Lee Iacocca yeah he's a the, clever guy
4: you know the uh, the whole thing with like the pony car competition in the nineteen right. sixties that became so big that uh, the, the, something like the Corvair. Just slowly started to drop off of people's radar, and uh, by the mid '60s, you know, it was, it was probably—I don't know—still sort of popular at the time. I mean, the sales mm. numbers were still decent; they weren't anything fantastic like they were in in uh, in the, the initial year or two. Yeah. Um, but um, in, by the mid '60s, I would say that you know, numbers were starting to trail off. And I, when I say mid '60s, I mean '64, '65—that era. Okay, um, that's accurate. By 1966, though, however, uh, should we just? Should we just do it. This is uh, this is probably it. Um,
5: yeah. Uh, quick, quick preface just for the background. Uh, what we have mentioned is that the public was unaccustomed to a rear engine, rear axle vehicle. Right, largely unaccustomed in the United States, and then uh, some other
4: negative factors. Sort of converged, right, yeah, Scott? Yeah. Here's uh, here's the part that people are probably anxious to get to because this is what I had always heard. Now, um, there's a guy named Ralph Nader, whom <laughs> some of
5: you may be familiar with. <laughs> yeah.
4: He's still around. Ralph also, Nader. Uh, like Mitt Romney, former He's, presidential candidate. Am I am I mistaken? He's still around, isn't he? He's still I believe so. You know, yes, alive and kicking, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, anyways, he was a at the time he was a young attorney. He mm-hmm. was a uh, consumer advocate, and um, oh boy, he uh, he grabbed onto one. Little fact here about the, uh, about the, uh, Corvair that we mentioned earlier. Remember, we, we said that it had this, uh, uh what do we call it? A quadriflex, uh, independent suspension. Now that means it's just, a, it's four wheel independent suspension. Yeah. With the characteristics of, you know, the rear wheel drive, uh, rear engine layout. Mm-hmm. Um, that made this car a little different handling, right? You know, the Europeans had already kind of taken care of. they they've already mastered this really with a lot of other vehicles um you know that and it's, they're quick to point out that you know Porsche 911 drivers didn't have any of the same issues but right. uh there were some handling problems with uh with the Corvair and it was based on you know that the, they just didn't the American consumer just didn't have any idea really how to handle that type of layout and how to drive that type of layout successfully there were yeah. a lot of problems in fact there were like a hundred lawsuits the GM was facing at the time
5: Yes, and, uh, let's also point out, uh, in defense of the American driver here, that because the engine was heavier than they expected, uh, almost 80 pounds over its target weight, uh, there were some negative consequences for handling. It would, it would oversteer. That is true. But did this problem get exaggerated? I think it is fair to say yes. Well,
4: you know, okay. There's a, there's a couple things that that Nader jumps on here, right? And the first, the thing is that probably that gained his attention was that there are a lot of uh, a lot of consumers that are suing General Motors over over accidents that have happened in the Corvair. You know, like I don't know what the accidents were if they were rollover if they involved. Uh,
5: they were they were a lot of them were being called tuck under. So a swing axle suspension right uh, has the uh, has the possibility for the. Axle to tuck under because there's a lack of a front stabilizer bar, and again we've mentioned the kind of unusual uh, tire pressure. Yeah, which is you know anybody familiar with tire pressure knows that 15 front, 26 rear, uh, that's cold is is an odd
4: pressure. That's pad. an that's an awful unusual thing to do. And it's I'm a weird sure ratio. Too. A lot of people weren't uh, weren't keeping up with that. I'm sure. Now the thing is that. You know, he, he, he found out that, you know, there's all these... these uh, he's a consumer advocate, I mentioned. Yes. An attorney. So he's he's right away jumping on General Motors saying, you know, there's something not right here. What are we going to do? Uh, found out that, you know, the GM... Uh, engineers had made the decision to remove, uh, the front anti sway bars for mm-hmm. cost savings measure. Now, they saved about $4 per car, according to some estimates, yeah. uh, by removing that front anti sway bar, which would have stabilized the whole thing and, ca- and, and, uh, minimized, I'm gonna say minimized, not prevented all of these accidents, right? Right, minimized now, is good. Minimized is probably the best way, because, you know, who, who knows. The situation in every, or well, who knows every situation. Yeah, we're right? not like hypothesis no, exactly. or whatever. Exactly. So, he's, I mean, he goes to the point where he's actually testifying against General Motors in a congressional hearing. Now, GM did make the change later on. They updated the uh, suspension and they they added the sway bar. Yeah, in uh, 65? Yeah, in 65. Five or six, I can't remember okay. which, but, uh, the problem is this, this book that Ralph had written. Ah, yes. Published in 1965, and it was a book called Unsafe at Any Speed. Colon, The Designed in Dangers of the American Automobile. Ah, okay. So now, you, you mentioned something that I had not heard, though, that really the Corvair only warrants one chapter in this yeah, book. Yeah, that's, right?
5: that's weird. Um, it's kind of like, it, it reminded me of, you know how everybody talks about, um, the invisible hand mentioned in, uh, some of the basic, ec- uh, text on economics. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the invisible hand, uh, the actual reasoning of that, that phrase only appears a couple of times mm-hmm. in that book. And, uh, the Corvair, the, the book, Unsafe at Any Speed, uh, has the following premise. It says that there is a, systemic resistance by car makers to introduce stuff like seat belts or other safety features and that this is um a choice to save money rather than improve safety i see now okay
4: so there's definitely an agenda here there's an argument okay now the four dollars per car whenever you know somebody probably say like well why wouldn't you put that in for four dollars if it's going to save someone's life they don't see it that way they see it as like well here's a uh a car that we've tested to be safe, we know that it handles exactly like um, cars of its class. Right, know, the cars of like the 911, the the Beetle that we mentioned. You know, all the the Skoda, all those that we mentioned. Um, it handles in exactly the same way, the same manner. Why would we put an additional four dollar option on there that we're going to end up having to charge our consumers an extra ten dollars for? Now, now considering to deliver. considering that this is a yeah to deliver. You know, by you know as far as uh, they they their cost is four dollars. By the time it gets to the dealer lot and to the to the individual purchase sure. of the car, the consumer, that ends up being a twenty five dollar piece or whatever <laughs> it is, right? Right. Now, but th- now you laugh, I know, but but twenty five dollars doesn't sound like much. But consider the, the the cars were right around the you know two thousand dollar range brand new. Mm. That's a significant increase in in price. Yeah. And of course they're doing everything they can to shave you know costs They want to be keep their consumers safe. They don't want it to kill their their consumers, they don't want them to be injured in any way either. Right, and they're a legal,
5: Yeah, they're legally not allowed to sell vehicles that don't meet safety standards exactly. in the United States. One thing that might be interesting for uh, a lot of our listeners is that every vehicle, even vehicles that seem to have been made the same way from year to model year, are always being updated.
4: If only in terms of matching safety standards, because yeah. safety standards evolve over time. And safety standards, like you mentioned, like the seatbelts and all that, that all cost manufacturers, and they they decide. Well, you know, early on, they can probably decide that that's an option we want to include. Like you'll find a lot of the high end vehicles include a lot of these options way before anybody else. Yeah, you know, so that they can uh, they can say like we've got this. The competitors don't. However, when it becomes a mandated safety feature, like you know, front lap belts were in cars that, right. know, in the mid '60s or whenever, um, then you couldn't really advertise like we've got front lap belts because your competitors got it everybody's got it every car manufactured has to have that so it doesn't become a it doesn't become a selling point at at that so i'm i'm just trying to say that you know gm at the time they weren't doing anything illegal by not including the anti-sway bar Mm -hmm. they did update it when they realized like there's a call for this that you know maybe that would help in you know the the handling characteristics etc etc yeah but they weren't doing anything wrong by not including that other than saving four dollars per car and and just to give an idea of how many cars they were making Mm -hmm. now You know, I said that the book published in 1965, and, you know, Nader's claims uh, that, you know, were very, very damaging to General Motors. Right, and they center on the models of 60 to 63. Okay, 60 to 63, so the initial three years of production. Now, the model sales went, and I told you about, you know, the first day sale, two day sales, rather. Yeah. Um, In 1965, they were still selling, this is per year, 220,000 Corvairs a year. Which is an awful lot of Corvairs Nothing out Nothing to sneeze at. 220,000 were sold in 1965. By 1966, after the book had been released, that number was cut in less than half. They're cut in more than half, mm-hmm. rather. Um, they were down to less than 120,000 in 1966. And then by 1968, that number is all the way down to less than 15,000 cars. So, so a dramatic drop-off.
5: So now the uh, here's the thing that uh, that we mentioned earlier. The... The book, Unsafe at Any Speed, uh, <laughs> while it definitely does have an opinion, he does ha- he also does do his research and he talks with people who are in the industry. Now, what some people may not know about this book is that it's not all about the Corvair. It's become widely associated with the Corvair, but it's like that Mark Twain definition of a classic. Everybody loves it, nobody reads it. Mm-hmm. Uh the primary focus of the Corvair is in chapter one, which uh check out this title, Scott, for chapter one. What's that? The Sporty Corvair. The one car accident. And uh oh, in this in this, um <laughs> based largely on some conversations with a guy named George Caramagna, uh Chevrolet suspension mechanic, um, they say that the missing bar that that sway bar we're talking about had caused crashes cara magna was um against the whole thing against the removal of it but um i i think we would be remiss if we didn't point out that when joel sent us this on twitter one of the things that he said about this was that the corvair was not killed by ralph nader hmm. he said uh he he said that's That's the hint. It wasn't killed by Ralph Nader. And I want to go ahead and uh, check out just a couple of statements that other people had made about the Corvair because...
4: yeah, everybody jumped on the bandwagon at this point, right? Uh huh. That's that's kind of what's going on, right? It wasn't just him, but he started the ball rolling. I think. Right? right.
5: I think he's more of a he's he's less of a single cause, and maybe more of a feather on a camel's back. Because here's where uh, we should mention something straight from the article that Joel sent us. Um, <clears throat> Contrary to myth, the Corvair was not scrubbed because of Ralph Nader's attacks. Chevrolet documents examined by several writers proved that the word had been passed to start development of a conventional front-engine, rear-drive car in 1964, before the new Corvairs hit the street. This was likely prompted by the success of the Mustang, introduced in the spring of that year, and it was decided well before Nader's book published. Can you guess what that car was, Scott? Uh,
4: let me guess the Monza. Uh, is the no, Camaro- no, I'm sorry. I said Monza. Monza is the uh, Corvair. I want to say, no, I don't know the Camaro. Camaro. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I'm, I'll I'll think of the car that I was thinking of this one here. <laughs> Not that the Monza is a, a Corvair. Um. Okay. Yes. So, I w- I do want to also point this out. From 1962 to 1964, there were changes that were made by Chevrolet to the Corvair um, as far as handling characters. Now, they were reacting to the lawsuits that were happening. Right, right, right. Before the book came out, before the congressional hearings, before right. all this is going and on. And those
5: congressional hearings weren't until 1972.
4: Yeah, yeah, they they happened much, much later. Now That's actually the, the proof of what's all going on here, and we'll get to that because the findings are very interesting. Yes, they are. Uh, but for 1962, so we're talking two years after the... the the, the launch of this thing, mm-hmm. three years prior to the book, um, Chevrolet did offer the front anti-roll bar as an option. And for 1964 model year, the 64 model year and on, now remember Nader, his focus is on 1960 to 63, I think. Right, right? yeah. Um, for the 1964 model and forward, uh, the, the anti-sway bar, the anti-roll bar, became standard equipment.
5: Mm-hmm. and
4: they even modified the rear suspension a bit you know adding adding different components to make that even sturdier so um they did react quickly right they reacted appropriately and responsibly and responsibly yes and uh somehow still in 1965 this book comes out you know slaying them for the uh the the models from 1960 to 1963 um, seems like that could be just an update like okay well we've changed it for the 64 bring it back into the dealership you know spend 20 bucks and, and we'll update it and make it safer for you um or you know maybe we will institute a recall or something right, like that yeah. i just don't know how it was all working at the time I, i'm not sure if they even did that back then well let's talk about that congressional inquiry okay so that's 1972 huh yeah 1972. years after the fact 1972 so they get some uh some people to investigate what really happened right and uh one of the probably the one that you'll find most often mentioned here is the Texas A&M University study and uh-huh. uh they they conducted a series of of tests and uh they had a press release that actually came out in 1972 that describes um what uh they handed it off to the NHTSA which is you know the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration mm-hmm. um they handed it off to them to uh to do comparative tests or to to evaluate this, right? And they said that the handling, uh, the, the, the study, which actually was re- released in 71, uh, says that the, the 63 Corvair and four contemporary cars, the Ford Falcon, the Plymouth Valiant, Volkswagen Beetle, and Renault Dauphine, um, along with the second-generation Corvair, which was com- completely redesigned, you know, with all the new suspension right. bits and everything, um, that it handled exactly the same way. It, I mean, it handled... Exactly the way it should and exactly the way that, you know, the other cars of its class handled Mm -hmm. in that day.
5: And so this means that uh, based on this study and other evidence, uh, funny story, the 72 congressional investigation
4: cleared the 60 to 63 models. Yeah, it's incredible. It says the handle, I'll quote it, the handling and stability performance of the 1960 to 1963 Corvair does not result in an abnormal potential for loss of control or rollover. And is at least as good as the performance of some of the contemporary vehicles, both foreign and domestic. So, um, again, cleared them completely. Um, but, uh, too late. Yeah. Four
5: dollars <laughs> per car, too little, and four dollars per car, okay. too late.
4: All right. However, I also, I've got a note here somewhere. I'll never find it in the mess that I've created over here <laughs> with this nest of notes that I've made. Sure. But, um, I also heard that, you know, when, when you mentioned that they were going to, uh, advance this other, this other vehicle, which mm. was what I the Camaro it. I forget it already. Okay, the Camaro, which was in direct con- competition with, um, with Corvair, and you know meant to compete with the Mustang.
6: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, the uh, the 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 point about this was that in 1967, I believe, they ceased all advertising of the Corvair, and even if you yeah. went into a dealership, you had to ask specifically for a Corvair brochure to be handed to you they didn't just have it out on the rack available you know i don't even know if you had to order one or what but um it was that kind of well we still offer that model but uh we're not going to have it on our showroom floor we're not even going to give you information about it you can order it but it's not on the menu no and prior to that you know there were all these models and and different Mm -hmm. types and people were excited about the corvair and uh and now you know it's become kind of this backroom deal which is a little (laughs) weird isn't it
5: yeah it is weird and i want to also point out because i don't want to beat the guy up too much um Ralph Nader, when, when he's writing this book, let's keep in mind that he's doing it as a consumer advocate. His heart's in the right place. True. He's, he's not out to do some, you know, shadowy, yellow journalism hatchet job. He does have the, um, he does have the right intentions in mind. Uh, does the problem get fixed? Yes. Uh, does uh, Chevy get cleared? Uh, yes. But, unfortunately, uh, we will probably never see um, uh, as many Corvairs as we could have or know how the rest of the story plays out. Scott. Well, okay. We, uh, I've, yeah. I've
4: got a little different take on this. Take it. Because, you remember I said about the uh, the advertising dropping off and the yeah. new vehicle and mm-hmm. all that? It probably was scheduled to fade away anyways. I think that even maybe even prior to this, maybe in the mid-60s, maybe it was going to go away. Maybe yeah. they maybe they didn't intend to have it until 1969 like they did. But, mm-hmm. uh, but. Remember, I mentioned Delorean earlier. This is where right. he comes back in. Now, 1969, Delorean is back. At, well, he's not back, but he's now in charge of the the Chevrolet division as general manager. Yes. Uh, I don't think he really gave too much uh, care of. of uh, he didn't care too much about uh, right. the, the Corvair and and what really happened to the Corvair. It just kind of died off. You know who did though? Who did? Bill Mitchell. Really? Yeah, Bill Mitchell,
5: one of the we've. This guy—that's interesting. We that... like him so much that we have a podcast on him too. Yeah, uh, Bill Mitchell was trying to push for continuing development of this. He—he he was a guy who was apparently hard to say no to. Well,
4: he was the styling guy, right? Who was yes. in charge of the uh, the Corvette, the, the Mako Shark, and all that. He—he uh-huh. he was a really interesting guy. That I. I... I really like the uh, the Bill Mitchell story. And his his whole
5: idea was that, Bill's whole idea was that he would hate for somebody else to come to him and say, as he was, as you said, VP of styling, he would hate for somebody else uh, from the executive board to come to him and say, what's next, and for him to say, oh, I don't know. Yeah. He always needed to have something, so he wanted to continue pushing for the style. But to your point, I don't know if it's too much of a different take there because i agree it seems like from the research that we've done that maybe the corvair had more enemies
4: inside gm than it did outside oh possibly that's a that's a very real possibility and i guess unless you were a fly on the wall in those <laughs> days uh then you probably wouldn't know now i had uh i had an uncle that worked there during these days i think i remember telling you this during the yeah. bill mitchell days yeah yeah he was a designer at chevrolet and uh, in the Corvette area, you know that that region of the uh style and design he was an engineer and uh i I wish he's he's no longer with us. I wish so badly Ben I could go and talk to him now and ask him about what was going on because now I'm really into this. I'm really deep into what was going on. I know all the names, I know all the players that were there uh uh-huh. right when he was there in right in the heart of the beast, right in the belly of the beast Ben he was right there he could have told me all of the all of the dirt on. Bill Mitchell and uh, mm-hmm. and and Delorean and all those guys, but you know when I knew him or when I was around this uncle, uh, I was too young. I just didn't. I was still interested in cars. Yeah, but I didn't have. I, I had no idea that you know I would ever need to know this type of thing or be interested <laughs> in this you know right. this much detail. So um, I just wish he was still around. I could still talk to him about it because that's uh, you know just. If if you got somebody like that around, just talk to them now and get all the stories you can out of them because it's so valuable. It's true. So uh, get choked up. The one, uh, one last thing, though. Yeah, yeah. I've got okay.
5: I've got I've got one last. Sure. Thing. The, my last thing is that uh, remember how we said that Time Magazine lauded the Corvair? Yes. And now, uh, surprise, surprise! It's a bit of a tut tut kind of surprise. Oh uh, uh, yeah. The 1961 Corvair is on the 50 worst cars list. Yes. Uh, Let me just read a brief description here. Um, Chevrolet execs knew the Corvair was a handful. They declined to spend the few dollars per car to make the swing axle rear suspension more manageable. Oh, they came to regret that. Uh, And then it goes on. It says uh, the Corvair had other problems. It leaked oil like a derelict tanker. Its heating system pumped noxious fumes in the cabin. Even so, says the Time Writer, my family had a Corvair, white with red interior, and we loved it.
4: Okay. So here's the deal. Nineteen fifty nine, they love the car, I think it's great, you know, they review it, it's it's perfect. By uh by what year is this list? Two thousand seven I think. Yes. Uh it makes this Time magazine fifty worst cars of all time. And I I don't know how many times Ben our listeners have sent us, you know, something from this list, or we've, you know, sent something out from this list. Yeah. Uh, because for Time Magazine to call it one of the 50 worst of all time, that's a pretty bold statement, right? Now, I wanna, I wanna quickly, quickly, quickly go through this, because I've got a couple things here still. Okay. That I, that I wanna, I've got one surprise coming for you in just a moment, so mm-hmm. hang on for that. I I'm waiting. I will give you that before the end of the podcast, I promise, okay? Alright. Something that surprise you and, and hopefully the listeners too. Um, Corvair related. Okay. Um, okay. (laughs) Promise I'll get to it. So, now, the way I see this is the Time Magazine thing. Now, the problems, of course, that that are mentioned here, you know, one thing that they mention is, um, uh, the handling. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, of course, it's a rear end. We've mentioned all this already. It's a rear engine car with a, with a tendency to spin out because of the way people drive it. Um, you know, the weight in the back, it's going to have a loose back end. That's just the way it's going to be. The swing axle rear suspension design, that's something that you just need to learn how to drive. And, and, Porsche drivers seem to have not had a problem with this. I mean, some have, but, you know, they, sure. they figure it out eventually. Um, also, there's the, uh, the this issue about a single-piece steering column. Uh, it was not a telescoping design. However, if you think back, now this is the 1961 Corvair that they're talking about here.
5: Right, and that, uh, mm. that column uh, specifically is referenced in Unsafe at Any Speed.
4: Okay, okay, so the st- single-piece steering column. I want you to remember, though, like how new that design is because um in 1955 the Ford Thunderbird had a telescoping steering column which is designed so that when you get in a front end accident mm-hmm. uh the steering column doesn't go right through your chest right the 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 uh steering column can retract within itself yeah like an antenna like you know the old antennas yeah, that like would push car down antenna. yeah like a car antenna like an old antenna but uh in 1955 the Ford Thunderbird had a telescoping design now you may think like okay it's been around you know for 8 years prior to that or whatever 6 years prior not the case because in uh, was it wasn't even an, it was only an option in the Cadillac in 1965 as a telescoping design. Mm-hmm. So it, I'm telling you, like there's a there's this time in between 1955 and 1965 when it wasn't standard equipment on every car. Yeah. it was just simply another design feature that the, that this one just didn't have. Now the safety mandates and everything they they made them have them later, as we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just want to give you an idea that you know it wasn't even an option on the Cadillac until 1965. So Why would it be on this Chevy Monza, this compact car, in 1961 or 1960 or whenever it was? Um, I I think that's an important point right there. Also, leaked oil. So, what? <laughs> um, every, I mean, I've got a, a car from 2005 right now that leaks oil. I've got, um, you know, every car I've ever owned has leaked oil, especially, you know, the British cars that I've owned. They're terribly. Ooh, we're going to get some letters. Oil leakers. No, they, they're known known oil leakers, so <laughs> that's not a big deal. But, I mean, even the, the project car that I have, everything I do to seal that thing up, it leaks oil. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's a huge deal. Now, I'm going to get you some uh, uh, oil case for your birthday. <laughs> by the way. i uh, probably need it. And hey, the, Oh, and the last thing—the the, the, the heating system. They had—they had this gas heater in the front of the car, yeah, which sounds crazy. Yeah. But that was kind of a popular option at the time. A lot of companies were doing that type of thing, and it uh, wasn't a very—it wasn't actually—it was an option that you opted to buy. Right. And it was a gasoline-powered heater that heated—you know—the heated the compartment of the car. I know it sounds terrible to do now, but uh, that's what they did, and that wasn't—it wasn't all that uncommon.
6: Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso.
0: and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
2: Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed.
3: smart intellectual i'm kind of smart i think like it would be fun we have the best conversations like we have fun but then he would treat me like crap
2: listen to on purpose with jay shetty on the iHeartRadio radio app apple podcast or wherever you get your podcasts trust me you won't want to miss this one
4: now let's get back into uh, the corvair here yeah you've got because um, i do huh? i have a surprise now Oh, I'm going to have to pass you a piece of paper here, so bear with me, listeners, here uh-huh. uh, to do okay. this. But take a look at the bottom of that page, Ben. What is Ni- this? That is from 1966. Holy smoke. And see, I, I knew it was going to surprise you with it, this. I am surprised. This is a 1966 electro 2. Now, he might mention I said 2, Ben. Yeah, I noticed you said so, 2. So uh, it's a battery electric car. Now, I said 2 uh, because the 1st Electrover was built on a 1964 Corvair. Um, which was converted to electric drive, but they uh, they had a few problems with it. They sorted it out. Mm-hmm. Um, this this version here, I found it in a, a book that we have on our shelves here at, at How Stuff Works. Um, it's uh, it's a really cool model. Now, I mean, you look under the hood under, in the trunk and in the uh, in the engine compartment, and it's it's dramatically different from the Corvair from 1966. It's built on a Monza model. Mm-hmm. It's got a 115 horsepower electric motor. Uh, these are silver zinc uh, batteries. Uh, they filled, They completely fill the front trunk and the uh, rear engine compartment, other than where the you see the motor in there. Yeah. The, uh, not the engine compartment. It used to be the motor compartment at this point. Right. Um, and this car had a top speed of 80 miles per hour. Wow. It had a range of 40 to 80 miles. 1966. 1966. It had a range of 40 to 80 miles on all-electric power. Now consider some of the cars today where you know the range is around 40 miles yeah that's pretty remarkable so uh zero to 60 not very remarkable that was about 16 seconds because you can imagine these batteries were extremely heavy they were um yeah they're silver silver zinc silver zinc batteries yeah yeah. Yeah. the car weighs 3,400 pounds that's about um that's about a thousand pounds heavier than the monza in its in its traditional form Mm -hmm. with the uh with the Engine that we had mentioned before. Like the, the comparable gas powered. The button. flat six, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I thought you would be uh, impressed by seeing this, and if if, if you're near a computer, somebody please Google this car. It's, it's pretty amazing to look at. In 1966. ElectroVare 2 and uh, just for the battery packs alone that's a cool shot
5: yeah that's really cool I am surprised thank you for sending that to us the ElectroVare 2 and um, I guess this is our way to wrap up the rise and fall of the Chevy Corvair Uh, hats off once again Um, as we know cars can be a murderous cutthroat business. I
4: want to say one more thing. Say if, one more if thing. If I had known then what I know now about the Corvair, now how many times people say that, but if I had known then what I know now about the Corvair, I would have uh, I would have definitely have considered it as a possibility for one of my first cars, if not, you know, first, second, third, somewhere in there. Yeah. You know? But, and who knows, maybe, I mean, they're a little bit more scarce now, mm-hmm. but uh, if I see one come up for sale, I won't, I won't look the other way now. Because I, I really, until we started digging into this, I just had such a, a bad connotation with the Corvair, And it was unnecessary.
5: So we hope that we've given you some food for thought, uh, especially regarding the Corvair listeners. Don't let its bad press uh, totally turn you off. But please do tell us what you'd like to hear more about. Feel free to send us, you know, limericks, funny anecdotes, pictures of your cars. Scott shaking his head no. You don't no, send us limericks. No limericks, huh? I'm going to send us limericks. Uh, you can check in with us on uh, Facebook. Uh, you can give us a holler on Twitter. And uh, if you would like to write to us, as did Sir Fast Sandy.
4: Yeah. Sir, <laughs> Mr. Fast. Mr. Fast Sandy. Mr. Fast Sandy.
5: Um, again, uh,
4: our email address is Carstuff at For
1: more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com.